Good morning again, everyone. So turn with me again, if you would, to Revelation chapter 11. And I promise this is the last message in Revelation chapter 11. And this will also conclude our study on the seven trumpets. Um, Nicole asked me yesterday, can I come up with something a little more creative in terms of how I number my messages? This is part 14 (laughs) on the seven trumpets. But I promise this is the last one. And next week, Lord willing, Mark's going to take us into the book of James. And then the week after We will move to chapter 12 and talk about the woman and the dragon. So as we wrap up our study today, um, we'll finish with the seventh trumpet. And just briefly on where we've been in this chapter, we began with the temple measured. That is the church numbered, sealed, secured, and defined. And then the church is commissioned as the two witnesses to declare, to declare, excuse me, the mind of God. And we find that this is not well received by the earth dweller, which leads to the persecution of the church in the great tribulation. And ultimately, we see as we conclude that the church is victorious, the church is caught up by God. Um, to be in his presence and out of the reach of its enemies. And there were three takeaways this past week that I wanted to remind you of. And and that is this, God has the final word over the enemies of the church. That should give us incredible solace. But there is a point in time that I believe is yet in front of us where we're going to see incredible persecution in the church. There, There will be some that will that will claim that the church is done and over with, finito. Don't believe it, but um, there will be a a picture of hopelessness and desperation, um, all of which sets up Christ, the champion of the church, to deliver the victory. So when days look dark and bleak, and we think the church is under much duress, rest in that, that Christ will complete what he has promised to do. Um, The second thing was that Jesus did not pray for the church's removal. We looked at John chapter 17. We talked a little bit last week about what we call the pre-tribulation rapture. Um, Jesus did not pray for the removal of the church, but that they would be kept and protected in the midst of tribulation which is a very curious thought as we read John chapter 17. We referenced that this morning in Bible study. And then the third thing is how long, this is the question that's raised by the saints, the martyred saints in Revelation chapter 6. The how long question is again addressed as we see the day of justice coming soon for those who persecute the church, that is the earth dweller, those whose home is here. And then lastly, we looked at the trumpets are a warning to those who would hear. Um, This morning, I want to look at verses 15 through 19 as we complete the chapter. And let's begin with point number one. There's three points that I want to consider this morning. And if Mark and I had been coordinating, point two would have been the same point as as a song that we sang this morning. Point number one, we see the kingdom realized. 
And this is a third woe. We ended last week with verse 14, but I wanted to touch on it again this morning. Verse 14 says, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You can't hardly hear that verse read without thinking of a particular um, Christmas play. He shall reign forever and ever. Um, Maybe it's just me. I don't know. But I thought about that as I studied this. Verse 14, the second woe has passed. What was the second woe? The second woe was the sixth trumpet. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And there's a lot of debate amongst commentators as to what comprises the the third woe. But I want you to see that the third woe is the seventh trumpet. We'll talk about that this morning. What is the woe that's pronounced here? It's a pronouncement of grief. What grieves the earth dweller? What grieves them? In chapter 8, verse 13, we see the original announcement of triple woe. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So the picture of the three woes that is to be highlighted against the earth dweller is consummated with the final trumpet. The first woe we saw was with the fifth trumpet, the opening of the abyss and the release of demonic torment on the earth dweller. Remember, we looked at that. It's a picture of the scorpion, the locust. Um, Revelation 9, verses 3 and 4 says that then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Demonic activity within the world is focused on the torment of who? The earth dweller. Those who are not sealed by the Spirit of God. So this is the first woe on the earth dweller. The second woe was the disappointment, the bitter disappointment that they experienced with the murder and then subsequent resurrection of the two witnesses. Defeat rescued from the jaws of victory, as it were. If you look in Revelation chapter 11, this is the the paragraph that describes the second woe. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies, that's the two witnesses, and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. You see the the reoccurring picture here for the earth dweller is torment. First, satanically. But then secondly, from the witness of the church, a twofold torment. Verse 11 of Revelation 11, but after the three and a half days, A breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. 
Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. Their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified. Glory to the God of heaven. We talked about that last week. Verse 14, though, concludes this, this section. It says, the second woe has passed. And behold, the third woe is soon to come. The tormentors are resurrected, and this is a this is a point of great grievance for the earth dweller. So the third woe here is the seventh trumpet, and it will come in the form of a hymn. Say, so why is a hymn such a torment to the earth dweller? Well, with the singing of this hymn comes something I think that's very important, and and that is the disclosure of the kingdom of God. We'll talk about that this morning. Verse 15, as we look at point one, the kingdom realized. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. Remember, we said that the seven seals dealt with or, or looked at the perspective of the sealing of the saints, the securing of the saints. Incredibly important for the encouragement of the church is to know we are sealed, we are protected, and God has his hand on us. But then the seven trumpets, as we move from seals to trumpets, the trumpets are a warning to the unbeliever, the earth dweller, the yet unconverted elect. And here is the seventh trumpet in the picture. And it's a picture of the completion of all things. We find in other places of scripture that this seventh trumpet that we see here is also called the last trumpet. So I want to make three observations here from this text and as we compare scripture with scripture this morning. First of all, when we look at this last trumpet, what what sticks out about it? Well, first of all, the warnings are over. The sounding of the last trumpet, there is no more warning. That time has come and gone. The time and space for repentance has ceased. The destiny of all humanity has been realized. In Revelation 10, 7, it says, But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servant, servants the prophets. In Revelation 22, 10 and 11, talking about the finality of humanity at the last day, it says, And he, the angel, said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still be right, and the holy still be holy. What is he saying? There is a point in time in which there is no longer any opportunity to repent. The the whole point of the trumpets and and temporal judgment that God brings on this earth is to remind people that that great day of judgment is someday coming. You have space now to repent, but that time is coming to an end. There is, for many people, this thought in the back of their minds that I can live my life the way I want to live it, and then at the very last second, when I figure out the time is short, maybe I'm on my deathbed, 
And not many people get to die on a deathbed where they see death coming. How many people are taken out of this life in completely unexpected ways? Young people could die in a car accident tomorrow. I was talking to somebody the other day. When the Lord determines to take you, there was an article of a woman that they got a bacteria from the dirt that killed her. When God is determined to take you, there's no escape from that. But this notion in our minds, and maybe it's subconscious, but the idea that I can I can wait until the last possible second, and then I can repent, as if you'll want to at that last possible second, is, is just a, a fallacy. With the seventh trumpet, the last warning's over. It's done. And then with it, we see the scripture tells us that with the last trumpet, the elect are gathered. This is the time of harvest, if you will. Matthew 24, 29, verse 29 through 31. Notice how it starts. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. What is that a picture of? We have sun, moon, and stars that that do what for us? They give us light. What else did God say in Genesis they were for? Times and seasons, right? When when the sun, the moon, and the stars go away, what is God telling us? You're out of time. Time's up. But he says, after the tribulation of those days, the, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Time is up. Time is out. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will rejoice with excitement. No. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels, listen, with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. At that point, the return of Christ, the time for repentance, any aspect of eschatology that tells us we have more time when scripture says we're out of time should be rejected whole cloth. The third thing I want you to see about the last trumpet is the elect are changed and victory has arrived. In 1 Corinthians 15, this passage blows me away, and as I was thinking about this, it, it's mind-blowing. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. This is the passage that Paul is talking about, the importance of the resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, you are hopeless. But in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 50, 15, he says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit what? The kingdom of God. Wait a minute. I thought the kingdom of God was an earthly, physical kingdom. Well, Paul says this, flesh and blood cannot inherit it, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen to this, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. Why is the change necessary? 
Why is that change necessary? When we think about who God is, and we talked about this in Bible study this morning, we think about who he is in his infinite perfection and holiness without any flaw, without any spot or blemish. How do I stand in front of him? How does he bring a sinner like me into intimate fellowship with him unless something changes? You say, well, there's already been a change. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. We're made spiritually alive. But guess what hasn't happened? I haven't stopped dying on the outside, have I? I looked at a picture the other day, and I'm like, dude, you're getting old. You you don't feel like you're that old, but then you see a picture, and you're like, wow, that's an old guy. (laughs) Why? Because our bodies are dying. They're failing. Hate to tell you that this morning. You came to church to be encouraged, and I'm telling you, you're dying. But it's true. But we must be changed. And the good news is we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now, what does this look like? Well, Paul tells us the sequence, the order here. We're going to witness something. If you are alive and present, physically alive, that the day that the Lord returns, you're going to witness something unbelievable. Verse 53, I shouldn't say it's unbelievable because we believe the promise of God. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. One of the final things that we will see at the Lord's coming, when he puts all of his enemies down, they're put under his footstool, is death is vanquished. And that has a physical, physiological change in the elect that he gathers. We're not going to stay like we are right this second. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. Do you do you revert to a certain age? I, I, I think as I think through this is we will be complete. We will be mature as God intended us to be. And our bodies will be gloriously transformed for the way we will be for eternity. But but what is age? What is age? Age is you getting one day closer to death every day that you age. <clears throat> I remember dad told me that when I was a six-year-old and it traumatize me. Every day you live, you're one day closer to dying. I'm like, ah. (laughs) But it's true. But death will be swallowed up in victory. And then Paul says, as he personifies death, the enemy of Christ, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Our bodies will be removed from the curse of sin. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. That truth is fantastic as it sounds, should energize us. You guys tired this morning? You had a long week? You've been working hard? You can't be tired and not have worked hard. It doesn't work that way. But you get discouraged, don't you? Tired. Feel like you've been beaten down a bit. Paul takes this amazing truth, which is, You are going to be gloriously transformed, and he applies it. What does that look like? He says, therefore. My dad used to have this saying frequently. He said, whenever you see a therefore in scripture, find out what the therefore is there for. What is the therefore therefore? Well, when Paul talks about the fact that we will be miraculously changed at the appearance of the Lord Jesus when death is swallowed up in victory, It should impact how I live right now. Truth applied moves us to action, doesn't it? It should encourage us. And what is the encouragement here? You are not working for nothing. It's not in vain. It's not empty. God is using the work of his saints, of his elect, to build a kingdom right now. And and what we need to understand is that kingdom work, doing dishes, feeding the kids, washing the kids' laundry, cleaning out the car, teaching our kids. Sorry, kids, there's a reoccurring trend here, but you're a lot of work. But when we think about all of the things that we do as the people of God, it is kingdom work. It has purpose, it has meaning, it has import. And Paul is trying to encourage us by reminding us that we're to be steadfast and immovable because we know how it ends. We know the climax of history, everything is going to be set right. Verse uh, 15, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Loud voices. When you're talking to your children and you elevate your voice, why do you do that? So they hear us. Do you ever say something that's not important really loudly? Not often. Lacey, are you awake? Okay, good. Just checking. When we speak loudly, we are conveying something very important. We're communicating something very important. Scripture says there are loud voices in heaven. And and we, we have a pattern here. Revelation 5, 12 says this, they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Revelation 6.10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This was the martyred saints. Revelation 7.10, and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the question here is, what are the loud voices of the saints emphasizing here? Well, the answer is this. The kingdom of the world has become 
the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. The word become there means to emerge, to transition from one point to another. The logical question as I read this is this. How long has God ruled? How long has he ruled? Always. Always. We intuitively know the answer to that question, don't we? Isn't God sovereign? Absolutely he's sovereign. So when does his kingdom start? Hmm. I want you to see something this morning. The kingdom of God is now growing with the addition of every elect child of God brought into the family. That's why I said your work, your effort, everything you are doing to support the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is building his kingdom. It's kingdom work. But here pictured in this passage is is the last enemy is put down, finally and completely judged, and the saints are vindicated. J.K. Bill says this, the heavenly voices can proclaim that the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ has come because the enemies of the kingdom have all been defeated and judged. God now takes to himself the rule that formerly he permitted Satan to have over the world. Now, just because Satan has in an area of authority over the world does not mean God has abdicated his sovereignty. But what they are rejoicing and celebrating about is God takes that back from the enemy, puts his enemy down. But the kingdom continues to grow unobserved. I want you to notice something. The kingdom of God right now, as it grows, is not observable by the earth dweller. They don't see it. <clears throat> What's even more troubling is much of the church, the professing church, does not see the kingdom of God growing. That's troubling because we misunderstand the nature of the kingdom. Didn't the disciples do that? Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When? Right up until his death, they were asking, Lord, can I I be seated on your right hand? When you bring, you usher in the kingdom. They thought his kingdom was an earthly reign, didn't they? What did they want? They wanted someone to rise up and put Rome down. Because Rome needed putting down. They were wicked. Israel was enslaved and they had a history of that enslavement. Babylon, Egypt, Assyria. Think about all of the enemies of Israel over the years. And they were primed for a physical restoration of the kingdom, weren't they? And and for, for so much of the church, that's where our heads are at. But I want, I want you to understand the nature of the kingdom. Matthew 10, 5 through 7, Jesus told his disciples to go and preach this. He says in, in Matthew 10, 5, Jesus sends out the 12, instructs them, saying, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter No town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why is he doing this? Well, because Israel is going to reject that message. And then he tells his disciples to do what with it? Then you go to the Gentiles. But here is the message that Jesus tells his disciples to preach. Proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
well, wait a second. Did Jesus not understand what the kingdom of heaven was about? Was he was he off on his timing? But what what is the, the, the meaning of the kingdom of heaven is at hand? That means it's right here. Right here. The problem is not the proximity of the kingdom. The problem is, is that some of us can't see it. In Mark 1.15, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in what? The gospel. The picture of the kingdom of God being at hand is the picture of extreme closeness, immediate imminence. Mark 9.1, he says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Wait a minute. That's confusing. If it's an earthly kingdom, then Jesus must have been wrong. What is Jesus saying? There are some of you that standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What brings the kingdom with power? What? Spirit of God. Luke 8, verse 10, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Luke 17, 20, here's another interesting verse. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, here was Jesus's answer. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be what? Observed. You're not going to see it with careful observation. You can stand guard and watch, and you're not going to see it because it's not observable. Or are we misunderstanding the kingdom here? He says, Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In the Greek, it's the word entos. It means within or inside. Is it confusing? Let's clarify this for a second. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, what can't he do? There's two things. Yes, he can't enter. But in John, that's John 3, 5. But in John 3, 3, Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. You can't enter into some place that you cannot see. But why is it seen by some and not seen by others? The natural man, what? Receives not the things of the spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. I would argue that much of the professing church has no clue as to what the kingdom of God is. Because the prerequisite to seeing, to understanding, and entrance into the kingdom is the kingdom of God coming with power. 
What does that mean? When Jesus said, there are some of you standing here today who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming in power, what was he telling them? I'm going to make you alive. I'm going to regenerate you. And in in the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, you will then see and enter the kingdom. So why this emphasis on an earthly kingdom? Why? Are we coming from a, a, a theology of blindness here? But here is where the third woe comes in. What has been invisible to the blinded eyes of fallen humanity will be made clear for all to see. That's the picture. And that brings with it wailing. The kingdom will be made visible to the enemies of God on the last day. And that is why this is the last woe. Remember what we studied in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7? Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will what? Will wail on account of him. Do you realize the picture of regret that he... And you say, well, how does that work out? At the return of the Lord Jesus, those who pierced him, those who crucified him, will look on him whom they have pierced and they will wail. Why? He's talking about the resurrection of humanity, the last judgment. They will see, wait a minute, we crucified the Messiah. He was who he claimed to be, and they'll recognize him. And the the net result of having their eyes opened and seeing that truth, is going to be devastating. They will wail. Everything that God is building now that is unseen to the unregenerate, he is going to make visible. And the resulting visibility of the kingdom of God coming in its full power when he puts his enemies down is going to be devastating to the earth dweller, but not to us. Point number two, worship the king. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God were introduced to the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4. Just briefly, I know you all remember this, so I'm not going to take a lot of time um, digging into this. But in Revelation 4.4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. What do we observe? John says they're clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 24 thrones with 24 elders. In this picture, we see in Revelation chapter 11, they prostrate themselves and worship to God. And the immediate question for us is, well, who are they a picture of? And and we're given a clue in Revelation 21, 9. It says, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. We're moving into seven bowls in, in a few weeks. And and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and its radiance like a, a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great wall, 12 gates, 
and and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names listen to this of the 12 tribes of the sons of israel were inscribed now we studied in revelation 7 who are the 12 tribes <clears throat> that was a picture of the completed church in revelation 7 the names of the 12 sons of israel inscribed and then it says on the gates Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We have 12, 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles. That equals how many for those math experts amongst us? <clears throat> Please, homeschooler, or not even a homeschooler, anybody. 12 plus 12 is what? There you go. Thank you. Here's the picture, right? We have 24 elders seated around the throne in their thrones. There's a picture here. Why are they seated in thrones? What is a throne a picture of? Ruling, reigning. It's a reminder that the church, Old and New Testament, the completed church is in a, a place of prominence, reigning with Christ. That's the picture here. And, and, and we know that this is the church because Jesus promises the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. He's talking to the church in Laodicea, okay? In Ephesians 1.20, Paul sa says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. And then Paul says in Ephesians 2.6, and raised what? Us up with him. <clears throat> and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the question is, well, when, when were the saints seated? Well, what are the saints doing right now that are not here on this earth anymore? <clears throat> what are they doing? They're reigning with Christ. This week was the seventh anniversary of my mom going to be with the Lord and, and just pondering that and thinking how much I miss her. Yeah. And, and then I think about, could I justify for a second saying, Lord, send mom back. I miss her. Could I? No, because she's reigning with Christ right now says he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. This goes back to the, the question of Satan and his area of domain and authority that we see him exercising in this world right now. Is Christ not reigning? No, he's absolutely reigning. And he will reign until and continue to reign until he's put his enemies under his footstool. That day is coming. <clears throat> Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, talking about the Trinity this morning, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So what is Christ doing now? And what are the saints that preceded us in death doing now? He's reigning. And they are reigning with him. That's the picture here of the 24 elders. They're clothed in white. The other picture we have is they're clothed in white. These are sinners who have been justified. What is the picture of being clothed in white? 
again, to the church in Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in what? White garments. Another picture of the church here. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The martyred saints in Revelation 6.11 says they were given a white robe and told to rest for a while. This, again, is a picture of the church summarized in the elders here. The third thing we notice is their crown. And we looked at the, the crown. The crown is a picture of the victor's wreath. What did Jesus say to the church in Smyrna? Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you what? Crown of life. So again, a picture of the church. The application is this, the prominence of the 12 and the 12 in Revelation 21 Equally 24, these are the saints of the Old and New Testament that are brought to glory by the Lord Jesus. And this is symbolic of the body of Christ who are already seating, seated and reigning with Christ in the heavenlies. And they are currently occupied with the eternal glory of worshiping our triune God. <clears throat> Verse 17, what are they saying? Well, this is the essence of worship, by the way. We give thanks. Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Think about and ponder what does the worship of the saints look like? And the essence of it is gratitude. I am fully convinced that our understanding and glory will be radically changed but we will not forget that we're redeemed. We don't get this whitewashed picture of history, but the essence of our worship for the triune God is his redeeming of us. The essence of worship is gratitude. It's the, the word in the Greek, Eucharistos. We've heard that term before. Eucharist, it means thankful. The picture is that the 24 elders are thankful for God's grace, for who he is and what he has done. And here is the point of their praise. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the all-powerful God who is and who was. You notice anything missing there? Yes. Yes. Think about that for a second. Here is a picture with the seventh trumpet. The future is now. It's arrived. All of history is culminated at the last trumpet. Notice that they changed their wording here. Who was, who who is, and who was. But now you've taken your power and you've begun to reign. You have put down your enemies. Past present, but future is omitted because the future is now realized at the end of all things. Matthew 24, 29, we read earlier, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Time is up. 
Our entire reference to time goes away with the last trumpet. You realize that? Eternity is ushered in. Why, why do we have time? <clears throat> it's for us. It's not for God. J.K. Beale says, the God who transcends time guides the entire course of history because he not only stands as sovereign over its beginning and end, but also in its midst, invisibly guiding it. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came. That immediately takes us in our minds to Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the nations rage? Psalm uh, verse 18 is referencing Psalm 2. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Remember, this is the hymn that they are singing. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. They are praising God for his execution of justice. Notice that. They're also praising God for his reward for the just. Say, well, how does that work? Well, it just told us what made them just. What are they wearing? Robes of white. Where did they get those robes of white? What is that a picture of? It's the righteousness of Christ. We're rewarded for the perfect work of Christ. That's why we are rewarded. There is nothing that I am doing in this life that is going to merit reward in and of myself. I had somebody talking with an online conversation the other day telling me that um, their works are what make the difference. I said, I don't want works. You have to understand the order of scripture. God has saved us to do what? For good works. Mm -hmm. Good works don't save me. And when you are holding up your good works as a point of righteousness, you're missing the point. The only good works that I care about are the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apply to my account. That's it. And you know what happens when God justifies us? He sanctifies us. And guess what? We bring forth fruit. What is that fruit? Good works. Let your light so shine before men that they may see what? Your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Good works, real good works, is the byproduct of the Holy Spirit living out the righteousness of Christ in us. But our righteousnesses are what? It's filthy rags. But here is the prayer of retribution of the martyred saints again being answered, and it's bound up here in the culmination of the final judgment. The saints are rewarded by their being made new, radically changed, and by the vindication of God's wrath on the destroyers of the earth. Take encouragement in this. The heathen, the world, the nations, rage. What does that mean? They're angry with God. And against who are they angry? Because guess what? They can't get to him. Who are they angry at? His people. 
And the scripture says they plot and they scheme. And what is God's response? In our 1999, 1990s vernacular, LOL. You guys don't say LOL, which means what? He is laughing at them. Think about all the conspiracies, the plotting, the scheming that every world power, every wickedness in high places can possibly come up with. You say, well, we got to stop this. Look what they're trying to do. God laughs. The nations rage, but your wrath came. The third thing is God's covenant remembered. Look at verse 19. And God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. You remember how chapter 11 starts? How does chapter 11 start? John has said, pick up a measuring tape, a measuring reed, and measure the temple. The Lord knows those who are his, okay? Revelation 11 starts with a picture of the temple, and it's divided off. Revelation 11 ends with a picture of what? The Holy of Holies. Think about the truth that's being conveyed here. And God's temple in heaven was opened. Think about that. God's temple in heaven was opened. And the Ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Where was the Ark of the Covenant? The Holy of Holies. Who got to go there? High priest once a year. And what did he do? He put blood on the mercy seat for his sins and the sins of the people. If you wandered into the Holy of Holies, what happened? Dead. Why? Because we must be changed. We can't see God as we are. It's a death sentence. You remember Moses so loved God that he said, Lord, all I want is to see you. Think about that. I so desire to see you as you are. And what does God say, Moses? I can't show you. By the way, Moses sees God as he is today. But Moses couldn't. As radically transformed as Moses was after he encountered God, he comes down off the mountain. And what does his countenance look like? The best skincare ever. (laughs) He's glowing. He's radiant because he's been in the presence of God. But God still could not show him his full glory because Moses would have died. But here the, the temple in heaven is open. The Ark of the Covenant is seen in the temple. This is a, a, a not so gentle reminder that his dwelling place is with his people. What did Jesus pray in John 17? Father, make them one as we are one. Bring them into union with us. 
the eternal purpose of the covenant-keeping God is to bring us into perfect union with him. And how does that happen unless we're changed? Even our worship now, we talked about worship in the presence of God. Even our worship now is hindered by sin. You ever struggle with your personal worship? Praying? Reading God's word, spending time in fellowship with him. Do you ever struggle with that? If you tell me no, I know you're lying. Why? Because you're sinners. And I'm a sinner. That's how I know we struggle with worship. Have you thought about anything else this morning as you sit here and hear God's word taught and preached than God's word? Have you? What's for lunch? What am I doing this afternoon? That'd be fun enough. No, I don't think so. Need a nap? Really tired? All kinds of things that go through our minds. Why? Because you're sinners. Oh, my. When we are in the presence of God and we are changed, there will be nothing to hinder our fellowship with him. No sin to divide us and separate us and break us apart from him. Those days are gone. The picture here of the temple, the the Holy of Holies being opened is a picture that we will see things as they are. We saw that when the Lord Jesus was crucified, what happened to the veil in the temple was torn in half, which is no easy feat considering it was a seamless piece of cloth, wasn't it? Ripped in half. The covenant-keeping God, I want you to see this, is what brings the church home. We talked about this this morning, the implication of the Trinity. If God was not a covenant-keeping God, we'd have no assurance that we will meet him in glory. 2 Timothy chapter 8, verse 13. I promise I'm almost done. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering Wait a minute, Paul, you're not supposed to be suffering. You should have been raptured, so we don't get this. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Wait a minute. God was building his kingdom using Paul while Paul was in prison. Oh, the irony. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also, what, reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, that is, we are unfaithful or we betray his trust. Did any of Jesus' disciples do that? Peter? He remains faithful. For he cannot deny who? Himself. What is Paul telling Timothy? Timothy, God will finish in your life what he started. Why? Because he is a promise-keeping God. You know how I know that? We talked about Ephesians 1. God has chosen us from the foundation of the world. Well, how do I know he chose me? Say, well, I can't know that for you. Scripture says, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. 
That tells me we can know that our calling in election is sure. How do I know that my calling in an election is sure? God has chosen me from the foundation of the world. How do I know that? Well, what else has he said he would do? He's redeemed me by his son. And then there's one other thing. He sealed me with his spirit. Mm -hmm. If the spirit of God has regenerated you and indwells you, you can know for sure that he's also redeemed you and he's also chosen you. He's kept his promise. There's only one other thing that he has left to do in your life, and that is to change you, to glorify your body at his return. When he radically transforms the rest of your physical being so that we can be with him where he is and see him as he is. So how do I know he's going to do that? Well, A, I know he keeps his promises, right? But he's already kept some promises to me now, hasn't he? He's already given me down payment on his promise-keeping ability. How? He's given us his spirit. Listen to what John says in 1 John 3, the same John that we're reading in Revelation. 1 John 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. What is John saying? Even now we are his children. But he continues, the reason why the, why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. He's already making good on his promises is what John is saying. Right now, we have evidence and proof of his promises. And what we, what we will be has not yet appeared. Listen to this. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as what he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. We shall see God as he is. The saint's vision is no longer kept from the holiness of God. Why? Because we're changed. That's the picture of the Holy of Holies being open to our vision. There's nothing God is, is covering. There's nothing God is holding back in who he is because he has radically changed us. Paul, or Paul says in in Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work, what? Will bring it to completion. When? At the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's kept his promises to you and I so far. There's just a couple left to keep. But we know that we worship and serve a promise-keeping God. John says, you that have this hope, purifies himself as he is pure. I want you to see also as we as we wrap up, the holiness of God is the source or the motivator for God's wrath. So there's there's two sides of this coin here. For the for the church, for the saints, they rejoice in seeing God for who he is. But also note that it is the the holiness of God that brings about the wrath of God. That's why this is a woe to the world. The prayers of the saints have been answered. The holiness, is, the holiness of God is revealed 
against the enemies of God. And then I want you to see, lastly, as we close up here, the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet mirror each other. You've heard me say repeatedly, these are, these are different perspectives of the same thing. I want you to read Revelation 8, 1 through 5, and listen to the comparison that we just read in Revelation 11. And, and this is, Revelation 8 is the seventh seal. Verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Verse 5, And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. Listen, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. There's one difference between that last statement in Revelation 8 and Revelation 11, and that is in in the seventh trumpet, we see the addition of um, Baal. Um, This morning, as we were coming down, some of us got very, very drenched. So we made it to the car. There was a thunderstorm that rolled in up on the mountain. And obviously it rolled in here too. But I was thinking about this passage as we're hearing the loud thunder booming. And as a kid, we used to sit on the porch way, way better than TV and watch the thunderstorms. And you want to feel that big sit in the middle of a thunderstorm. The picture here is of almighty God moving on behalf of his saints to bring about the end of all things where he judges and puts down his enemies. And the picture that's added with the seven trumpet is the picture of hail. Where do we see that? There's two prominent places in scripture that come to mind. The place when God is rescuing Israel from Egypt and he judges Israel or judges Egypt. And then the other place is Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Picture of God's judgment. But with the seven trumpet, it's the ending of all of the judgment. We're going to see with the seven bowls another perspective on this. Why does God repeat himself, by the way? So we get it. We're hard-headed. Man, we're thick sometimes. How does this apply to us? Well. Takeaways for today, the last trumpet, this picture of the last trumpet should energize and encourage us to abound in our work. We read it, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, what is the therefore, therefore? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your obedience to the Lord Jesus is not wasted time and effort in this life. I wanted to read something for you briefly this morning from a pastor, um, author, and contributor to Table Talk by the name of Eric Watkins. He says this, and see if this resonates with you like it did with me. Work can be often frustrating, but you got me there. (laughs) Work can often be frustrating, whether it is the work of raising children 
providing for our families or serving the church. Thorns and thistles entangle everything we do. In the midst of this frustration, Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, your labor is not in vain. This is a potent and refreshing reminder that no matter how difficult or seemingly meaningless our work appears, it is meaningful to God because it brings him glory. And for that reason, it is not in vain. The statement comes at the end of the resurrection chapter. Paul most elegant and extensive commentary on the vital importance of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel, no hope, no meaning in life. All would be vanity and the pagans' poets proven true. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Without the resurrection, Christians are the most pitiable fools in the world. But because of the resurrection, neither our faith nor our work is in vain. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our own resurrection, yet it is more than that. It is also that which gives meanings to our lives in this world. If we think backwards biblically, this makes sense. God created Adam to enjoy fellowship with God in the context of Adam's work and rest. Everything, including work, was good before the fall, before sin scarred it all. That is why there is no perfect job. Think about this, young people. You keep hearing, you got to pick a career. It's going to be your, just, it's just so good. It's so perfect. Uh-uh. Mm. Listen to what he says. That is why there are no perfect jobs or perfect families on this side of heaven. They all bear the mark of Adam's fall and need to be redeemed by the grace of God. Ecclesiastes captures this very well. We might climb the highest ladders, surround ourselves with trophies of success. And yet we will still feel the thorns of the course or the curse upon the rows of our achievements. And in the end, our achievements blow away like dust in the wind. That should temper what we pursue in this life, by the way. We can chase shadows that, that are going to blow away in the dust. He continues, that picture would remain bleak and depressing were it not for the grace of God that not only triumphs over the curse, but reverses it in order that we might find a blessed joy and satisfaction in our work, whether it appears to be immediately fruitful or not. This is accomplished in the resurrection. The resurrection is Christ's vindication of not only his person, but also his work. It sheds new light on all that Christ did and new light on all that we do as well. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul is not just speaking to pastors or missionaries. It is to the whole church that he says that our work is in the Lord, and thus it is not in vain. Perhaps if we would view our work by faith and not by sight, not as the world sees, but as God sees, we would find joy in it. Because we know we were created and redeemed to glorify God and enjoy God in our work. When we look at the work through the lens of faith, we find joy and meaning as we realize that through our union with the resurrected Christ, our labor is not in vain. Think on that. Secondly, we ought to worship him now, for we will worship him just like the 24 elders are already worshiping him. I touched on it, but it's it's based on thanksgiving. The whole point of worship is being thankful for what he has done. If you have not been redeemed, have not been born again by the Spirit of God, you have no basis to worship this morning. 
Scripture says they that worship him must worship him how? Spirit and in truth. A dead man cannot worship God. But the, the regenerate, we have something to be thankful for. We have something to be excited about. Why did they worship him? Because he will take power at the, at the last trumpet, reveal his kingdom, and vanquish our enemies. And then lastly, God's covenant love will bring us all the way home and change us so that we can see him as he is. If that does not excite you in some way, then you are asleep in the pew. He will change us so that we can see him as he is. But his promise is going to get us there. Father has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. The son has redeemed us and the spirit has sealed us. Our eternal destiny is secure. We don't have anything to fear. Because of that, we know that he is going to finish what he started. Just thinking about the song that we sing frequently as we close up, how deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. All of what he is doing is because he loves us. Think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the amazing picture that we see in scripture. And Lord, we are, are talking about it, preaching about it, reading it doesn't do justice to what you have in store for us. I pray, Lord, that for if only a few minutes this morning, you might take our thoughts to you, that you might remind us and impress upon our hearts what it is that you have in store for us. Father, that that truth applied in our lives would encourage us, would edify us, would excite us, would empower us, Father, to push on through what we often deceive ourselves into thinking is mundane service that nobody seems to see or appreciate. Lord, our our reminder this morning is that our labor is not in vain. And Father, that you will redeem even our labor as we work for your kingdom. We praise you for that this morning, and we ask that you would strengthen and encourage us and empower us as we leave here today. Bless our fellowship together, Father, and our time in your word this afternoon. We ask these things in your name.